0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Summer is winding down, and so is our series uh, that we have been doing this summer as we've taken a look for a number of weeks now. I think it's been 12 weeks that we've been doing this about how to really handle the storms of life as they come. And so it's appropriate that we would end here with this very famous passage. Uh, And if you've been around the church for any length of time, or even if you have some, some, some very cursory experience with the scriptures, you've probably read this passage or heard sermons on it, and so uh, it's a very familiar familiar scene. And there are many ways to come at it, uh, but for our purpose this morning and how we want to wrap up everything we've been talking about this summer, I want you to pay attention to the contrast between Jesus and his disciples uh, as they weather this storm. Both the disciples and Jesus are in the storm. But they act very, very differently, don't they? And so that's, what I want to, that's really what I want to kind of zero in on this morning. Now, the purpose of the parable in Mark's gospel is to cause us to wonder at Jesus' power and authority. The way you see the disciples doing it at the end, do you see that there? What does it say? That they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Okay, so they are, they, they are worshiping by the end of this story. At least they're, they're overwhelmed with a sense of awe. And that is really what the story is meant to do. It's meant to lead us to worship as well. And Because in the Bible you see the sea, if you read from the beginning to the end, the sea really is representative, it's an it's a image or a metaphor of chaos and disorder. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God is the one who is praised because he has the power to step into the chaotic sea and to make it, make it calm. I mean, it's this image you encounter over and over and over again in the Bible. And so there's huge connections between this scene here in Mark's gospel and the claim that Mark is making about the one who can stand in the boat with his hands raised and calm the sea. This, this is a claim of divinity. It's a claim of, of Jesus' authority and power, and Mark's very specific in what he's doing here, but... I would like to make another suggestion this morning. I want to I kind of say, yes, of course all of that's true, and that's probably the way most of the time we come to this passage, that we deal with it. But, but this morning I want to suggest that the purpose of the story isn't just to lead us to worship, but it's also to lead us to obedience. Uh, and this is really kind of in light of everything we've been saying for the last couple of months, that the Bible is very clear, that if you have put your faith in the one standing in the back of the boat, commanding the winds and waves to cease... Then, as we read, for an assurance of pardon, he has sent the Holy Spirit, not just into the world, but into your heart to live inside of you. And so the consequence of that, for every single one of us in this room, of which that is true, the consequence of that is that you and I now have the power and the authority that Jesus has here to bring the same kind of peace. Now, I know. No that sounds grandiose, okay? I'm not at all suggesting that the next time a thunderstorm comes rolling through, that you go out into the middle of the field and yell, peace, right? And expect that anything is going to happen. The clouds are going to magically dissipate. But I am suggesting that part of the lesson, part of the lesson that the story holds for you and I, is that in saving us, God has given to us the resources that we need to live in the middle of life's storms like Jesus does here right speaking and bringing peace and not not like the disciples do who are overcome by fear and cowering that's that's the point i'm trying to make okay that that we really do have the resources we need to live in the middle of life storms the way that jesus does in this story okay and so the three points of the outline that i gave you this morning if you want to break it up into three three little snapshots three little bits of what we're going to do this morning i want you to see Again, we're really focusing on the contrast here. And so I want you to see first, we're going to focus on the disciples. And what you see about these men is that the storm that they find themselves in creates a stormy heart in them. That's what's true of the disciples. The storm they're in comes into their inner life, and it causes a stormy heart inside of them. But in contrast, I want you to see that Jesus' heart, Jesus is quiet on the inside. He's, He's at peace internally And it's out of that peace that he actually has the power to speak to the storm and quiet it. So there's the the disciples who find themselves in the storm and become stormy themselves. Then there's Jesus who is at peace and is able out of that peace to bring peace. And then I just want to ask, how can we live like Jesus in the storm and not like the disciples? Okay, that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's just start. First, with the disciples. Okay, let's look at them for just a minute, these guys. Now, the storm, the storm comes up on the lake, and it creates a storm inside of them. So the storm around them, the things swirling all around them, somehow come in to their life. They come into the inner parts of, of their life and their heart, and they cause them to be stormy on the inside. And so the disciples are an example of what it means to live from the outside in. That means, uh, from you know, what's happening out here, coming in and begin to mess up or... Or, or, you know, manipulate what's happening in here. And most of us have experience with this, don't we? That your internal life is determined by your external circumstances. That if everything is nice and calm around you, then, then you know, it's pretty, It's not too hard to be okay most of the time. You're calm on the inside. But as soon as, as soon as something happens, as soon as the phone call comes, or as soon as the stock market turns the wrong way, or whatever the case might be, as soon as you have that hard conversation with a friend or you even anticipate those kinds of things, when the storm comes up, the pressure increases, and then your inner life gets stormy. But whatever the case may be, your your inner frame and disposition is dictated by your circumstances. This is what the Bible refers to as an anxious heart. The image in James, tossed to and fro, which I think Jonathan mentioned, tossed to and fro by every changing circumstance. One minute you're okay, and then some small things happen happens and you're not okay, and then it takes a change in your circumstances for you to flip back over to be okay again. And so we've been talking a lot about this and about how it is that the Bible says that the peace of God is able to come in, and this is the, Joe did such a great job with this analogy a few weeks ago, to guard your heart. That's Philippians 4, that the peace of God can guard your heart. And so Joe used the analogy of a fort. Do you remember this? Fort peace So the fruit of the Spirit there, peace, the way it works is it comes in and it builds a fortress in your life so that no matter what's happening around you, no matter what's happening around you, inside you're safe and secure. Peace builds strong walls around your inner life so that even when the battle is raging and the bombardments begin, right, whatever they might be, criticism from other people or financial trouble or... Or the death of a loved one, whatever, whatever the case. Then, and they tend to come in bunches, don't they? If you've had any, you know, They tend to come in bunches when you're under assault. Uh, the cannon fire crashes into the wall and it just comes in a, f- in a fury over and over and over again. But no matter how many times it crashes into the wall, the wall doesn't crumble and you're safe on the inside. No matter how badly the battle rages inside, you're at peace. That's the idea. That's the idea. Now the opposite of peace is anxiety or discontentment. And anxiety means that the walls in your inner life have become crumbled and are lying in a heap. So there's nothing, there's nothing to keep the enemy on the outside from coming in. There's no way to guard your inner life from what's happening around you. And so as your circumstances change, for better or for worse, your inner life has no choice but to follow with follow with it. Do You see how this works? So there are many of us who are afflicted like this. And no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to make any progress. And as painful as as it is, as overwhelming, you know, as it can be, we have to see that this is a sin that we need to repent of. And we need to keep seeking repentance. It's hard for me to even say, because I'm I'm afflicted like this. But I'll show you in just a minute what that repentance really looks like. But let me apply this in a couple of ways before we move on. And I want just two or three things here, okay? about what you see in the disciples. And the first thing is, is that what we learn from this is that the real storm, the real storm in life, I mean the real problem, the real storm that we face uh, is not even the storm that comes, it's really the stormy heart on the inside. I mean, it's one thing to be going through a really tough time. That's hard enough, isn't it? But to go through a storm with a stormy heart, to face painful circumstances... Scary things, and on the inside, what begins to happen is you begin to crumble. You begin to battle guilt. You know somehow it's your fault. God hates me. He's punishing me. I wonder what I've done wrong that this is happening in my life. See, when you begin to when when your heart begins to do that, that's the real storm. That's the storm inside that can change whatever storm you're facing into a mega storm. Mark four thirty-seven. Do you see there the the, the Greek? is really fascinating. Here in our translation it says a great windstorm, but literally in the Greek it's the word storm, and then it just has this prefix, literally, mega. Mega is a Greek prefix. Mega storm. So what happens to the disciples, because they're raging on the inside, the storm, which really was manageable at the beginning, has become a mega storm. That's what happens. Does that make sense? So the real storm is what's going on on the inside. Well, if that's where the real problem is, and let me apply it in a second way, then, then, then if that's the problem, if the problem is how I'm raging on the inside, then, then the promise of God's working is directed right at that, that. He doesn't promise us no storms. I mean, if you read very carefully in Mark 4 here, beginning in verse uh, 35, Jesus is the one that says, let's go across to the other side. Do you know what that means? He led them into this. Does that mess with anybody's faith? Right? He's the orchestrator of these things. So, I don't think you can read the Bible and say, and come to the conclusion that God's promise is that if you put your faith in Him, everything's going to go just great. He does not promise us no storms. He promises us peace. So the reality is, we have very little control over what happens in our circumstances, most of the time. But, we do have some measure of, of control over what happens on the inside in response to our circumstances. And so the person who lives with a stormy heart is usually very manipulative and controlling because their strategy is to try to control their circumstances. Okay, so my, my favorite, I'm going to try to keep everybody happy so nobody will criticize me because I can't stand the thought of criticism. So how do I deal with criticism? I'm going to make everybody happy. Okay, do you know what that leads to? Stress, Right? stress, running around, constantly trying to manipulate my circumstances because I can't, I can't face the reality that I might be criticized. And so my, my, solution, is to, my solution is to keep everybody happy so that no criticism comes. I mean, it hasn't entered my mind yet to think, what about becoming a person who can deal with being criticized? Right? I desperately want to do the right thing so that everything goes the way I want it to. Right? But I think the teaching is stop spending so much time trying to create the white, right circumstances and start building some walls. And then just a last, a last little application last little application here. Uh, and it really is that we do a series like this one this summer, and yet, and yet we're tempted to keep going on, even in light of everything that we've labored to try to teach over the last few weeks. We keep going on, thinking the solution really is to minimize the storms, and it becomes a strategy. And so, a lot of us have a lot of the resources and talent that we need to be pretty successful at this, to be quite honest with you, but the Bible's solution to the problem of suffering is not technique, it's character. And it's not using your money and connections to avoid the storms, but instead it's using the storms that God sends to become a person of character. Can I repeat that again? The Bible's solution to suffering is not that you and I would use our money and connections and resources to avoid storms, the Bible's solution to suffering is that we would use the storms to become people of character. So you read, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials. And you want to say, what? What? Count it all joy when it starts to go bad. Because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness must have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, on the way to, to church this morning, I was praying, and I I've just been struck lately that some of my f- most favorite people that I love the most, that I, that I consider the most, it seems like uh, affliction comes to the best of us. The very best of the people that I know seem to have to walk through such terrible suffering. And then I thought, you know, maybe that's the reason they're the best of us. Maybe it's the other way around. I think that's what the Bible would teach. C.S. Lewis had a really profound thought. He he let me quote him. He said, "For the wise men of the old, uh, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge and self-discipline and virtue. But for the modern man, the problem now is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is technique. In other words, he says, it used to be that we understood that in order to be successful in the world, we had to work to do on ourselves. We had to become fit." For living in a world full of heartbreak and pain and loss. We had to gain moral fortitude uh, that we needed to be faithful amid the ever-changing circumstances of life. But now, he says, and this was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, can you imagine how much more true it is today? Now, he says, we approach life as if the problem isn't uh, us, the problem is our circumstances. And so the solution to whatever we, you know, whatever we're facing is we do whatever we have to do to make our circumstances what we want them to be. So the problem is external, but Christianity says no, no. The problem is not the problem's not out here. The problem's in here. And the good news of Christianity is that Christianity offers spiritual power to subdue the in here, no matter what's happening out here. And Jesus really is the picture of this. So let's come to him for a minute. Let's look at him. He's the opposite of the disciples in this scene. He's asleep in the back of the boat. Now, the question is, I mean, isn't that silly? I mean, the rain, the rain is coming. The, the picture is, is that the waves are crashing over the side of the boat. They're literally, literally beginning to bail water out. The ship is going down. They turn to look and find their leader, and he is asleep on a pillow, we're told. Now, scholars have pondered this. Is he so exhausted that he is unaware of the storm? Some have suggested so, but I really think that misses the point of the story. I really think Jesus is asleep here because, as the psalmist sings, and we said earlier in our service, he knows that he's safe in God's care, that even in the storm he dwells in safety. and It's so profound. That sense of being cared for by his Father in heaven is so profound for him that he lies down and goes to sleep and is not disturbed by the wind and the waves around him. So in contrast to the disciples, Jesus' internal frame and disposition is completely independent of his circumstances. He doesn't fly too high. He doesn't get too low. There's a steadiness to his emotional life. That no matter what's going on around him, he's able to deal with with it. Jesus, right, the stormy sea does not cause... Jesus, to have a stormy heart, it doesn't come inside. In fact, what we find, what I'm just marvel at as I read this this story, the real real beauty of him here is it's the reverse. He lives from the inside out. And let me explain. And this is what I want you to really see. So whereas in the case of the disciples, do you see what happens to them? The storm around them leads to a storm within them. But with Jesus, it's the exact opposite. With Jesus, the, the calm inside of him is so powerful that it creates calm around him. The disciples are so overwhelmed by the storm that they become, you know, internally stormy. But Jesus is so overflowing with inner peace and joy that his inner frame powerfully begins to transform his outward circumstances. It's really quite remarkable. Charles Spurgeon is the one who made this point. I wish I could claim it for myself, but for most things, you know, we're stealing this stuff from other people. You know that, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It's not my job to think all these things up. It's my job just to find them and bring them to you. That's all I really do, okay? So Charles, Charles Spurgeon, who, the Prince of Preachers, uh, in a little communion meditation that he preached, he said that it was only because Jesus was able to be still in his heart that he could be the one who could still the storm. And he has this meditation. It's really marvelous and, and, and really, really challenging to me. So let me just quote him for a minute. He says, he says this. He says, He that hath peace can make peace he that hath peace can make peace we cannot work miracles listen to what he says and yet the works that jesus did we do also so sleeping his sleep we shall awaken his rested energy and treat the winds and the waves as things subject to the power of faith and thereby and therefore to be committed into quiet our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains we too shall say peace be still Our confidence shall prove contagious, and the timid shall go go brave. Our tender love shall spread itself, and the contentious shall cool down to patience. Only the matter must begin with ourselves. Listen, he says, we cannot create calm till we are calm. It's easier to rule the elements than to govern the unruliness of our hearts. But when God gives grace, the grace he gives has made us masters of our fears so that we can take a pillow and fall asleep amid the hurricane because the fury of the tempest is over. Now those are his words. And I want to note a couple of things there for you. First, I want you to see that Spurgeon assumes that we should be doing the things that we see Jesus doing, even this. He says that. He actually quotes uh, from, John, from John's gospel in that. But secondly, he tells us how. He says it begins by being quiet within, by being filled with inner joy and peace and calm so that then you become a person who can bring calm. Your peace will become contagious, he says. You'll get around anxious people, okay? Can you imagine this? Would this not be, for some of us in the room, this would be, I mean, this would be a miracle. I get around a contagious, I mean, excuse me, an anxious person, but I don't become more anxious by their anxiety. They actually become more peaceful because they're around me. Listen, if that ever happens, okay? That is like, chalk that up. It's the virgin birth, the, the parting of the Red Sea and that. Probably number three. But he says it's possible. You can get around anxious people, but their anxiety won't make you anxious, but it's, it's possible that your inner calm can calm them down. You'll get around fearful people. And your bravery, your bravery will make them brave, but not until you're calm yourself. Jesus is so peaceful that he falls asleep in the storm. And when the disciples wake him up, their worry, do you see how it works? Their worry and fear don't penetrate into his heart. No, but out of his inner peace and confidence, he stands and he speaks peace. And the wind and the waves cease. And we're told, verse 39, there was a great calm. Okay? Same Greek word. Mega calm. Mega calm. Now, let me, let me apply this in a couple of ways, too. See, if the real storm is a stormy heart, then the key, the key to dealing with storms is to be quiet and not stormy on the inside. And Paul goes on in Philippians 4, which I mentioned a minute ago, to describe what living safely within the walls of God's peace would look like when he says this, and it's, this is just a remarkable thing. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance i've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need now i marvel at that and by the way it should encourage you this is not jesus speaking this is paul paul's figured out how to do this if paul can figure it out you and i can paul's figured this out he he says his inner life was not aff- afflicted, afflicted or affected by his circumstances at all when the storm hits And he found himself facing hunger or need. He didn't sink into despair. But even more amazing to me, in light of even Deuteronomy 8, which we read this past week in community Bible reading, he says uh, when it was a sunny day, when a sunny day didn't bolster his happiness, he knew how to go through a hard time and not fall apart, but he knew how to go through a good time too where there was abundance and he had everything that he could possibly want and not become puffed up and overconfident. So there was no connection whatsoever in Paul's life between what was going on outside and around him and what he was feeling internally, how he was processing that stuff on the inside. He was completely free. Completely free. And this is Paul who said, Be like me as I strive to be like Christ. But let me ask this question then. As my wife would say to our children, this is, my, this is one of my wife's favorite things to say to our children, and it's so good, and it always comes at the perfect moment. I don't know how she does it, but she knows exactly when. She'll look and she'll say, are you being a peacemaker or are you being a troublemaker? That'll stop you in your tracks. But I would ask you, are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? Here's why, here's, here, here's why it's so important. If your inner frame and disposition have the power to affect people around you in significant ways. Spurgeon said, Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships, whereof others are captains. I can't say it as well as he says it. He goes on, he says, Our calm shall work marvels in the ships, whereof others are captains. Our confidence shall prove contagious, and the timid shall become brave. See, when you're at peace within, you have the ability to bring peace. But if your heart is chaotic what the Puritans call disquieted, then everywhere you go, guess what you'll do? You're just going to create chaos. So as a matter of self-examination, as a general rule, and this is by way so we can know how to repent this morning, would people say of you that you, when you come into a situation, you have an uncanny ability to just quiet things down? bring peace to the situation, or when you get involved, do things get stirred up? Are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? Do you create chaos or calm? And the last thing I want to do in applying this is just say, the way we do this, I think another thing we learn from this text, the way we do this is often with our words. Our words. Jesus stands in the boat and he speaks. Do you see that? He speaks to the wind's the wind and the waves, and there was a great calm. And it's a picture of the kind of ministry that he has given us towards one another as well. Proverbs says that the tongue holds the power of life and death. The New, Tev- New Testament equivalent of that um, pr- proverb is, is in Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 says, and I want to paraphrase it this way, this is my translation of Ephesians 4, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think this is what Paul's saying. He says, don't speak words that tear the people down, but only, only, don't speak words that tear the people down, but only, only speak words that encourage and build others up because they are wise and full of grace. So the Bible seems to know that our words have power. If you dig into a person's woundedness, the root of it is often words. We have the ability, we have the ability to create chaos or calm in other people, and especially by the words that we speak. Criticism, gossip, blasting other people with angry words. This comes from the chaos within. It actually comes from insecurity and fear and grasping for control. And so I think the Bible would say, be careful. Be careful the words you speak out of your own inner disquiet. Be careful. Be careful the words you speak out of your own insecurity and fear. You will damage and wound. You'll discourage other people You'll take their courage away. You'll take their calm from them. I mean, do you know how hard it is to find that quiet on the inside? Man, we should guard that for one another, not take it away from one another. Fight for it for one another, not selfishly and thoughtfully destroy it. There's a lot at stake in this. If you're at peace, then you will have an incredible ministry to the people around you who are fighting for it. Your inner strength and confidence will be contagious. When you speak peace to other people's hearts, the peace will come. I mean, that's the picture. So be careful with your words. They can be deadly, but they can be powerful. Okay, so there are the disciples who, once the storm comes up, begin to be stormy on the inside. And then there is Jesus who, because he's calm and quiet, internally he's able to speak to the storm and make it calm. And I'm making the argument that though we live more like the disciples most of the time, then Jesus, God's work in our lives is to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that more and more we would be like him. So how? What's the difference? That's where we have to end. How, how does, uh, what, is, what does Jesus have that the disciples don't have? So that we can learn how we can get what we need to be able to do this as well. And we can answer that question. Uh, it's given to us here in this text. The text has an answer. Uh, Jesus himself does. He turns to the disciples and he says, if you look there, verse 30, Why are you so afraid, he says to them, have you still no faith? One of the gospel, other gospel writers remembered it a little differently. He has Jesus saying, "Oh, you of little faith, Matthew 8, 26. So the problem is their lack of faith. And what do I mean by that? Okay. So as the story begins, we're told, look there in verse 40, that the, the disciples were afraid of the storm But in the very next verse, by the end, they were... And you can see how how it's beautiful how the writer does this. They were afraid of the storm, verse 40. But by the end, they were mega afraid of Jesus, verse 41. There's that little mega again. Mega afraid. And so the key to faith is being more afraid of Jesus than you are of the storm. That might sound strange because of the word fear... But in the Bible, your fear is the most controlling thing in your life. It's the most defining, controlling reality of your life. So when God says, fear me, he doesn't mean that he wants us to be terrified of him. He means that he wants us to, he wants to define our reality. That he wants to be at the very center of our life. The disciples are afraid of the storm because the storm is their reality. They're in the middle of it, and that's, that's all they see. There's the storm and nothing else. See, that's unbelief. But for Jesus, there was the storm, but behind the storm was the God who sends storms. So the ultimate reality of his life was God's power and love, not the storm. You see the difference? Let me put it this way. The difference is that the disciples are judging God's love by their circumstances, but Jesus is judging his circumstances by God's love. And faith means looking at all of our life through the lens of his love. That circumstances change, but God's love for his people is constant. That's why Paul could say, plenty of hunger. Abundance or need, I'm content, because he learned that the good times and the hard times, they both come from the same source. He was convinced that God loved him and would take care of him no matter what was happening in his life. So you see how that's the issue? Look at what they do. How's their unbelief stated? How do they put it? Verse 38, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we're perishing? And that's where every sin begins. Jesus rebukes the waves and then he rebukes him. Why? them. Why? Because, because that's the sin underneath every sin. Is God good? Can I trust him? That's the lie of Satan in the garden. And it is this doubt that we see in the disciples here that is, as I've already said, the real storm. This is the fear within that makes the fighting without unbearable. Because it's one thing to go through a hard time but for it to cause you to feel as if God's abandoned you. To think that you've done something wrong and that you're being punished. That's, that will shake you to your core. But what if, like Jesus, what if you could live without any of that internal struggle? It would take away the storm inside, and it would make you able to face the external storms with joy and peace. And everywhere you go, you'll bring peace. And that's exactly what the prophet Zephaniah means when he says, and we read the verse last week, and I didn't bring it in for this week, but we probably know it by now. Zephaniah talks about God's God's, um, blessing of his people, and he says, and he will quiet you with his love. In other words, knowing that he loves you, That's what brings the internal assurance and calm, knowing that whatever comes into your life comes from God's love for you. The good and the bad, the fun times and the hard times, it all comes from the same place. That's faith. That's what Jesus had that the disciples didn't. The disciples were unsure. They questioned God's care for them. Do you care that this is happening to us? But Jesus was sure. I mean, he knew. He knew my favorite verse in the Bible uh, Deuteronomy 32:4. God is a rock. He is my fortress. Listen to this: His works are perfect, and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. So, how can we know that? How can we be sure? Well, Jesus is not just the model of what faith looks like. In His person, we see what a life of quiet, trust, and dependence looks like. But in His work, we see the reason why. We can lie down and sleep in the midst of the storm the way he did, trusting God to take care of us because his work was all about the internal spiritual storm in the heart. You see, we think about the cross and we immediately think about the physical agony of it. But the real agony of the cross was the spiritual agony of it. The real storm, the real storm is the feeling that God is angry with you, that you've done something wrong and you're being punished. But that is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. God was angry with him. He did punish him for our sins. In his dying moments, Jesus turned to his father and said, Do you not care that I am perishing? And there was no reassuring voice. There was only the storm of God's wrath that was unleashed against him. And the waves broke upon him. And he sank down to the very depth of hell. But like Jonah in the Old Testament story, his death was the end of the storm for us. The storm of God's wrath has been, has been unleashed against him, and it has now ceased. And if you trust him, if you trust him, no matter what's happening in your life, there is no more storm like that for you. Whatever storm you find yourself in, there may be a lot you don't understand that you can't be sure of, but you can be sure of this. The psalmist says, love and faithfulness go before him. So whatever's happening to you, it comes from God's love and faithfulness to you. He's not mad at you. If you're in a storm, listen, please heed these words. God is not mad at you. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, he's not mad at you. He's not punishing you. He can't be. He's already dealt with that on the cross. He loves you. He cares. Lord, do you care? Of course he cares. We don't always know why he's in storms. We're not told, but we are told that the sadness and the pain and the loss that we experience in this life, they break his heart so much so that he gave up his life so that he could begin the work of making all things new. So that one day, there will be no more crying, no more death, no more pain. But not yet. Not yet. For now, the storms come but the good news of the gospel is for those who have put their faith in Jesus, the storms come, but they never come apart from his love. William Cowper, who himself struggled deeply with depression and despair, has a great hymn, and I just want to close with these words. He, he, really, he really sums this up well. Here are his words. He says, "'Tis my happiness below, not to live without a cross, but the Savior's power to know, sanctifying every loss. Trials must and will befall." But with humble faith to see love inscribed upon them all, this is happiness to me. And that's what he can do in our hearts even this morning, in these moments as we finish our service. So let's pray that he would do just that. Will you pray with me? Father, as we sing now of your great love for us, would you minister to our hearts? Would you, by a powerful work of your spirit in us, subdue our hearts the way you subdued the stormy wind and the waves. Subdue our rebellious hearts that despite all of of the evidence to the contrary, we would still doubt your love. We would still put you on trial and question your care for us. Subdue our stormy hearts. Speak peace to us so that you might turn us into people who can have a ministry of speaking peace to others that you might be glorified in us and through us in the work that you would give us to do. This is our hope and prayer. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) It really takes a lot of courage to sing those words uh, because it takes an enormous amount of faith. And so where do you find that courage? Where do you find that faith? Uh, Words are powerful, right? And just as Jesus stood in the boat with his hands raised to say to the storm, Peace. And there was... A great calm. So in the words of this benediction, I raise my hands over you as his representative. And these words are his words of peace to you as well. And so receive them and may they calm your heart into submission. May they fill you with joy and strength and confidence that you might go bearing his peace uh, to bring it to others. That's the promise. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.